The revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. The violent uprising by Trump protesters at the Capitol in early January has led several social media companies to ban the former president from their sites. While Twitter has imposed a lifelong ban of Trump, Facebook and its property Instagram took another route by allowing the ex-president's accounts to stay open while not allowing him to put up new posts. Facebook's controversial content moderator program is tasked to come up with a ruling over the Trump ban. Critics have raised concern over Facebook's multi-million dollar program, stating that it's confusing, inconsistent, and error-prone. Nevertheless, its handling of the Trump ban could have lasting effects on how social media sites police content from political leaders as well as other users. With us to talk about the issue is Jillian York, Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She spoke with Digital Village's Leilani Elbano. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. On January 6th, Thousands of insurrectionists violently attempted to take over Capitol Hill. In its aftermath, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter decided to ban Trump for inciting violence. While Twitter is maintaining its Trump ban, Facebook's oversight board is still deciding whether or not to reinstate Trump's status. What's the significance of the board's decision, not only for Facebook, but for all of social media? This decision has two major points of significance. First of all, Trump's speech on Facebook is a matter of record. And so for future historians to look back at, we want to know if this is something that's being preserved, if this is whether or not he has the right to post in the future is another question. But I think that that's a really important point to note here. The second point is the chilling effect or the trickle-down effect that this will have for other people, both in terms of other leaders around the world and in terms of the ordinary user who's content removal doesn't get as much attention as that of the president of the United States. But I guess it is to be expected that he's going to get this kind of attention, considering he is the leader of one of the most important countries, at least politically. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, And yet at the same time, you know, Facebook's user base is not primarily American. Facebook has users all over the world. And so it's really important that they do pay attention and apply their policies consistently globally. Do you think Facebook will be fair, or is any attempt at content moderation at this massive scale a losing battle? I think that content moderation at scale is truly impossible. And so in order to get it right, we're going to have to kind of rethink the way that it works. When a lot of these platforms were launched, and Facebook in particular, they simply didn't have nearly as many users as they do now. And so now we're playing a different game. And that means going back and looking through the policies, giving them a full audit and saying, you know, okay, what actually makes sense in 2021? And what sort of basis do we want underlying these policies? So if you think it's not possible really to be completely fair, what does that mean in terms of 
the way we should be pushing for content moderation in these social media sites? Should we just kind of give up? Or what do you think is the remedy for that? No, I don't think that we should give up. Um, There are a few things that companies can do right now. They can be more transparent. They can provide us with numbers, for example, their error rate, the content that is taken down erroneously. They can give us information about content moderators and where they work, what languages they work in and speak. They can also ensure that every user has the right to appeal, which is a really important thing because Trump, of course, is getting all of this attention with the oversight board. But when your average individual has a piece of content removed or their account disabled, they're often sent into an endless automated feedback loop. And so it's really important that users are able to appeal these kinds of decisions. And it seems like Going into so-called Facebook jail has a lot of consequences for people whose lives or businesses or political activities really revolve around social media. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I actually experienced this myself a few years ago. I can't remember the details, but I believe that it was after sharing a breast cancer awareness campaign that included a nipple, which is banned on Facebook services. I wasn't able to log into Spotify. I couldn't comment on websites that required a Facebook login and obviously, you know, couldn't RSVP to local events and things like that. And so I found that it profoundly affected my life. I wasn't even able to access EFS profile because you have to use your personal profile to log into your work one. So I think that it's really important that we consider the impact that these kinds of removals have on ordinary people. What kind of decisions does the oversight board make regarding content? Does it actually have governing power? So the oversight board has some good things about it and it's got some not so good things about it. It was primarily set up to review cases where something had been removed, perhaps wrongfully, But recently, the members of the board expanded the mandate to include cases brought by users where Facebook's content moderators have decided to leave posts up, so kind of the opposite issue. And this change is going to expand the number of posts that the board can assess, and hopefully we're going to see more kinds of progress like that in the future from this board, which, although I have some criticisms about the way that the mandate was created, it seems that the board is kind of activist in nature. But where are the real nuggets of power in terms of decision-making. Does it have any power over advertising or surveillance, disinformation campaigns, harassment, content, algorithms? So most of the power of the board comes down to content. This could relate to algorithms in the future, but it's not going to have an effect on things like surveillance. And that power really is consolidated within Facebook's executive team. That's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the few people that surround him. And so that's really where we should be focusing our energy towards trying to get things changed. So in essence, it does have some power. I mean, I just feel like if really there should be any focus on the oversight board if its power is just limited. I've been skeptical of the oversight board since since its inception. And yet at the same time, I think that it does have the potential to reinvent itself the way that it already has by expanding its scope. And so I'm kind of waiting to withhold judgment fully until we see what this creates. There's a lot of really incredible people on the board. And yet, of course, at the same time, because of the way that it's connected to Facebook and the fact that Facebook refers a lot of the cases and created the board in the first place, I think that it's reasonable to have some doubts about it. There are two Trump posts in question during the January 6th Capitol attack. The first is a video of Trump sympathizing with the rioters, but asking them to leave peacefully. 
And in the second, Trump repeats that the election had been stolen and tells his supporters to remember this day forever. Both were removed. Now there's a move by about 60 organizations asking that the Oversight Board not only consider Trump's last two posts, but his history of hateful posts and incitements to commit violence. Your thoughts? So I think that that's actually a really fair request, that they look back at the history of these posts and consider the the entire scope of them rather than just those two. I do think that the timing of the removal was kind of suspect in the sense that Facebook and Twitter both waited until the last few weeks of the Trump presidency to remove him. And yet at the same time, I also have concerns about the fact that we're spending so much time talking about Trump's posts when there are a number of other world leaders who are using Facebook's platform to incite violence. We've seen this in Myanmar. We saw a genocide unfold there, much of which has been attributed to viral posts on Facebook. We've seen violence happening in India, in a number of other countries. And so I think that what's really important here is that the Trump case not just be about Trump. Whatever decision is made needs to be applied consistently to other world leaders. Just going back to what you were saying, you're saying that the timing was suspect because Twitter and Facebook only decided to take down the post as it approached the end of Trump's presidency. Can you talk about yeah. that? Sure. So for probably three years, if I recall correctly, people had been pressuring these companies to take down Trump's accounts. Now, I think that there's valid arguments for both cases there, but the fact that the companies waited until the very last minute when the insurrection was happening, rather than watching the buildup for that and listening to human rights experts, I think that that's really of concern and will have an effect on how these companies deal with issues when they happen throughout the world where violence may be more likely. I think that there was a bit of U.S. exceptionalism here, really. Like, if Facebook had learned from what had happened in Myanmar, so what happened in Myanmar was basically that you had a lot of public figures, including military generals, who were using Facebook to spread hatred of the Rohingya Muslim population, inciting violence, etc., And if Facebook had really learned its lesson from that, then they might have seen what was happening in the U.S. in the same vein. But instead, I think that they sort of viewed the U.S. as exceptional. This can't happen here. You've called Facebook's track record with content moderation inconsistent. Can you explain and and maybe focus on LGBTQ groups as well as other underrepresented groups? When we look around the world at who's most affected by these companies' policies, and Facebook's in particular, it's often the most marginalized and vulnerable communities in the first place. So this includes LGBTQ groups, includes political activists and dissidents the world over, as well as, for example, people who run afoul of the real names policy, people who are trying to protect their identity, or people who are engaged in sex work. And so I think that part of the issue that I have with these platforms is the way in which we, as a society, the media, but the platforms themselves as well, disproportionately pay attention to Trump at the expense of all of these other people who, for whom removing an account may have a much more devastating impact. So can you give me an example when you talk about the real names policy? Tell us about that policy. Sure. So Facebook launched originally with a policy that required that people use the name that was on their identification. That policy was later modified around 2014 or 15 after a number of drag performers in the San Francisco Bay Area had their accounts removed 
as a result of the policy. So they were reported in en masse, suspended from the platform, and fought back against it. And so now the policy is a little bit different. It's called the Authentic Names Policy, um, and it allows people to use some form of their name by which they're known publicly. But at the same time, it can be very difficult for people outside of the United States in particular to submit identification that Facebook approves for this purpose. And so there are still a number of people throughout the world who struggle with getting their accounts verified when this happens. And this includes trans people, for example, who may have different names than those reflected on their identification. It can also, of course, include people who want to be pseudonymous for other reasons. Right. I'm thinking about people in domestic violence situations who don't necessarily want to use their birth name. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people in domestic violence situations or LGBTQ youth, you know, people who are exploring their identity or trying to protect their identity, all of those people should have the right to, you know, if not be anonymous, then at least to be able to use a name by which they feel comfortable or safe. And what has been Facebook's treatment of militant groups? Have they been consistent? The way that Facebook handles militant groups is somewhat based on the United States State Department terrorist organization list. Now, Facebook calls it dangerous groups, but the underlying law that they look to is U.S. policy on this. And so this means that around the world, groups that the United States considers terrorist groups, which is often different from what the EU or the U.N. has on their list, those groups are not allowed to have space on that platform. But as we learned recently from the Guardian report, there are exceptions made to that policy. And some of those exceptions are a little tricky. So for example, in places like Myanmar or Lebanon, where there are powerful non-state actors, people have more freedom to talk about or praise those groups, which is really kind of puzzling in some ways. Also, Facebook gave Philippine President Duterte a massive platform when it introduced him to their social media site. How has that impacted Philippine politics? Yeah, so in the Philippines, one of the issues that's arisen in the Duterte presidency is drugs, of course. He's, he's gone after drug users in a very heavy way, using violence, often inciting people to take matters into their own hands. And so Facebook has actually had to kind of work their way around that by creating exceptions to that policy specifically. So, you know, on Facebook, you can't talk about drug use, but in the Philippines, they're even more strict about the way that they apply that policy, ostensibly to keep people safe, and yet at the same time, that could have a negative impact on harm reduction efforts. So regardless of its inconsistencies, how important is it to have content moderation on social media? So I believe that content moderation is a good thing, but I think that companies need to be really clear about it from the get-go. And so it is great for companies to be able to say, hey, look, like these are the things that we don't accept and the things that we do accept, and to give users the ability to consent to that. The problem happens when these companies are constantly changing the rules under our feet and not fully informing us of them, and particularly not fully informing all of their users in all of the languages which they offer the platform. This has been a problem for many years, and when Facebook first launched its community standards in 2011, they actually only launched them in a handful of languages, despite the fact that the platform was available in more languages. So when we think about Facebook as a global platform, and again, their original mission statement was to make the world more open and connected, I think it's really important to think about the fact that not all users are treated equally. So people are wondering, on what basis is Facebook making these content decisions, and how different would things be if Facebook adopted an international human rights framework? 
So Facebook has several documents that are underlying their policy. First, you have the terms of service or the terms and conditions, which are written in legalese and hard for the average user to understand, but those are contractual, at least in California. Then you have the community standards, which are translated into, I think, all of the user languages at this point and are quite detailed as of a couple years ago in terms of what they offer. But they are hard to understand. If you look at them, you can see, you know, there's a lot of detail, for example, in what part of a a woman's breast you're able to show, you know, how you can talk about um, certain, you know, how you can speak about public figures, for example. And then you also have documents that, that are created to train the teams that do the content moderation. Um, And of course, in addition to that, you also have automation that plays into this, that is also used for content moderation. And so it's really kind of a big mix of a lot of things, and it's constantly changing, which makes it very difficult for the average user, or any user really, to understand what the rules are at any given time. And so if Facebook were to instead base their rules on a universal human rights framework, that would mean that we would be looking at something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the ICCPR, as a guiding framework. And that would allow for a lot of freedom of expression, but would have limitations on things such as incitement to violence or threats to public health and public order. I'm just curious as to the thinking behind social media sites like Facebook that allows these kinds of incitements of violence in the first place. You know, I think that this comes from Facebook not really knowing what they were going to be when they started out. Facebook was created in Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room. It was originally a way for people to rate hot women on campus and eventually morphed into a global platform. And we saw its importance really in 2010 and 2011 with the Arab uprisings and then the Occupy movement and all of the other movements that came after that. But as this platform grew and became really truly global network with billions of users, so did its purpose. And the company really has kind of struggled to keep up with that. So in the beginning, they've leaned toward a broad concept of freedom of expression. But over the years, came lots of public pressure and pressure from governments as well to take down certain things. And so allowing violence but not allowing nudity is, in my estimation, a pretty American way of looking at things. It kind of reflects the history of broadcast and other and film in the United States. Whereas if we were to create policies that were based on a more universal standard, we would probably see a little bit more balance there. Well, in the latest news, the Oversight Board has delayed their decision on Trump's reinstatement on Facebook. What's your prediction on this one? Do you think that the Oversight Board has the capacity to maintain consistent content moderation when it comes to repressive political leaders, or do you expect much of the same? I'm not sure if I can predict. Um, I've been thinking about it quite a bit, um, and I'm, you know, I'm quite frustrated that they're taking up so much time on this when there are so many other important cases. And yet, at the same time, you know, I think that um, it's likely that they will uphold the decision to remove Trump. I don't really personally have a strong opinion on that, but I think that the real issue will come down when when we see how that applies to future cases. And what will be the ramifications of that decision if they allow leaders like Trump to maintain their status? So, you know, I think that it's troubling that we're looking to corporations to make these policies in the first place. When we think about who has power in their speech, 
world leaders obviously have more power than most people. The impact of their words is much greater than the impact of my words. And yet at the same time, if a company removes them from their platform, as they have the legal right to do in the United States, the leader also you know, has somewhere else to turn. Trump can call up Fox News. Another world leader can call up state television, perhaps. And so I think that when we look at this, we really have to think of it in those terms. And for me, the question is less what impact will this have for future world leaders, but what impacts will it have if we allow corporations to make all of these decisions about what we can and cannot say? I think there are those who are part of those 60 organizations that want to look into Trump's past history of hateful speech and his incitements of violence, particularly because they see the real world consequences it has on their communities particularly underrepresented groups. And so it does have a major impact. And I think they're less concerned about what kind of corporate power has on our speech. Yes, I mean, I think that I share their views on that. I think that when I look to the rest of the world and the decisions that these platforms have made that have enabled and allowed violence to happen elsewhere, you know, I absolutely understand that. And yet I also think that we can't just look toward the most satisfying decision in the moment. And again, obviously, I agree that Trump's words caused real harm. And yet the problem is the fact that we were able to elect Trump in the first place, not the fact that he was able to speak on a platform. Um, And I think that when we think about these policies, it's really important to think about the fact that he had an account for many years on these platforms before he was president. He probably said many things that violated the policies, but because he was rich and famous, they didn't treat him in the same way that they would treat an ordinary user. And that's why, for me, it's really important to look at the big picture. And yet, I do empathize deeply with the Americans and the groups making this argument, because I I do understand where they're coming from. Maybe it's a balance of both considerations that's important. I think it is. I really think it is a balance of consideration. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, we do want to make sure that in the immediate moment, more harm can't be caused. And yet at the same time, we also want to think big about what the future of freedom of expression looks like. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. That was Jillian York, Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She spoke with Digital Villages' Leilani Albano. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you you online. online.